Welcome to The Bittersweet Life. If you're new to the show, I encourage you to go back to the beginning, all the way to episode one, and join us for the whole journey. There are a lot of great episodes in the past that you just shouldn't miss. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Testing. Yep, I'm on. All right, let's do it. I'm a little stuffed up today, so hopefully I... I am too. It's allergies, man. It's springtime, yeah. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And last week we talked about museums. And our assignment was to each go to a museum. Did you succeed in your assignment? I did not succeed. I'm sorry. I feel terrible, but I do have I do have a good excuse. It was a busy week, but I, I should have done it, but not this time. Did you? I did, as a matter of fact. I went to the Pacific Science Center in Seattle. They put on a special exhibit right now about Pompeii. It's called Pompeii the Exhibition. The big advertisement says it's the last United States tour. So I had to go see it, right? And it was also just a little bit me trying to reach back and enjoy my time in Italy. Not that um, we lived in Pompeii or something like that. but That would have been very difficult. <laughs> that would have been very difficult considering it's a ruin. But I thought, well, at least culturally it's going to be very familiar. And I was looking for an exhibit that would remind me of my year abroad. So that's what we picked. And I took Derek with me. Can I describe it to you? Please. Have you been to Pompeii? This is horrible to admit. I'm embarrassed, but I have never been to Pompeii. How was the exhibit? Well, I've been to the real Pompeii, and the thing that's missing from the real Pompeii that you go see in Italy is that none of the artifacts are there. Where are all the artifacts? They're in museums. In various museums. Yeah, I mean, I can't give you the factual details of where they're all located, but (laughs) they're on tour now. (laughs) Some of them are in the United States. When you actually go to the... Pompeii ruin it's mainly just rocks on the ground the outlines of houses things like that and here you can actually see things that were objects that they owned that they found in the wreckage of Pompeii which was really cool but what they do is they start the exhibit out with a little history and I'm going to play you some clips too by the way as we go along so you can kind of get the feel the nice people at the Pacific Science Center let me bring my recorder along with me and tape it which not everybody gets to do but it starts out giving you a little history. 2,000 years ago, the mighty Roman Empire was at the height of its power, ruling lands that stretched from England to Africa and from Syria to Spain. One of the flourishing regions under this dominating rule was located south of Rome, defined by the colossal Mount Vesuvius. Pompeii was one of the... Once that's over, the doors open and you end up in if you were a rich person living in Pompeii and they teach you a lot about what it was like to live there and there's the artifacts and there's paintings and there's 3D videos that are recreating their homes. And then you walk out and you get to go into the kitchen and see their oil lamps and their wine storage containers. And I kept making Derek say little things about the artifacts and the tape recorder, which he did not appreciate. (laughs) We're looking at a large urn with sort of a pointed bottom sitting in a stand and it says that it's an urn for carrying garum and garum was sort of a fish sauce like you would see in Vietnamese or Thai food and it was the primary Roman food seasoning. How do you know that? I read a book about salt. What's his name? Mark Kurlansky I think and it starts off talking about you know salt during the ancient world and I don't know he just mentions that at one point. 
did they do any like recreation of the event? Multimedia laser thing that makes you feel like you're there? Yeah, so once you get through and you get really attached to their lifestyle, they even did a room that was dedicated to the brothel in Pompeii. More than 20 girls worked in the house. Their tenor of life was of the worst, and their profession obliged them to live in complete isolation from other women. But once you get through all that, they wind you up a ramp, and that's where terror is about to strike, and you come to the point where they show you the explosion of the volcano. To get you all sorted out here, this is the eruption theater. It is going to go for four minutes, and what it is, is a four-minute squish of the 24-hour uh, loss of Pompeii. So we're going to share that portion of the eruption with you. It's dramatic. It's got some really crazy fog effects and strobe lighting, which is not for everybody. And if that's not for you, we have a bypass available for you. So let me know if you would rather bypass. Are you excited? Very. So what we're seeing is a very nice, peaceful day where people are just going about their business. There are birds flying, and then the, the mountain erupts. People sort of screaming and dogs barking like in alarm because, of course, they weren't expecting it to erupt. And then it does this accelerated four-minute destruction of the city. So what actually took 24 hours in real life takes four minutes in the video. And the floors of the actual room were shaking and they're flooding it with smoke. So when the gusts of hot air and ash come flying at you in the video, that the room is filled in that same way. Oh, I love it. And then when it's all over, when the video ends and, and the town is covered in ash and you've just watched it be completely destroyed. These two doors fly open and you walk into a pitch dark room and the lights slowly come up and you're surrounded by the plaster casts of all the people dead the all dead around people? you. Yeah. Okay, that's kind of morbid. Well, you remember how they could take the plaster cast of the people frozen in the position that they were in because they got sealed in this hot ash. Right. That's right. And so they made plaster so casts of So these are those. actual reproductions of the actual positions that people were in. Yep. That's cool. As the ash hardens, it solidifies the shape of its victim's bodies long after their flesh is gone. And there's children and there's adults shielding their eyes and there's three people trying to run up a staircase that are collapsed on the stairs and it's really something else oh i want to see this well if you could get to seattle it's up until may 25th so you can come all the way over here and see pompeii now it would be probably easier for you to actually get down to pompeii <laughs> i think so <laughs> than to get to seattle to see pompeii here but if you get here by may 25th you can do it i keep bugging my husband to take me to Pompeii. Not that he has to take me, but he has family down in that part of Italy. And so every time we go down there, I'm like, let's go to Pompeii. Let's go to Pompeii. And the main reason I want to go, besides, I, obviously, it's a place that would be amazing to see. But it's because every year, part of it collapses. Every single year, getting more and more ruined and more ruined. It's going to get to the point where the entire site is just closed and nobody can go there. And so I'm desperate to get there before that happens. You probably have a lifetime. I think you probably have enough time to see it. No, but even... I, I can't imagine it will be 
completely destroyed no. before you're an old woman. No, I'm sure I'm sure it won't be completely destroyed, but but for example, the Domus Aurea in Rome, they did all of this excavation for decades. This was Nero's Golden Palace, this enormous site. And really, they only excavated a very, very small part of it. But it was still supposedly amazing. And my mother happened to be in Rome when they had just opened it. And she went to see it. And I think I was busy. I was working or something. And she was raving, oh, my gosh, you've got to go see the Domus Aurea. It's amazing. A month later, there was like a collapse, and they closed it again. And it was closed for like another eight years. They did actually open it for another very brief period, and I did manage to go, but I just saw such a small part of it. And now they've restored it again, and so now it's been opened again. But again, I I really doubt that you see very much. And so what I'm worried about with Pompeii is that every year that I wait, I'm going to see less and less. It could be true. That's a very interesting reason to travel, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote an article once about the endangered sites. These are the places that you should go to now before it's too late. What was the number one on the list? Well, they were all places in Rome, and I can't really remember off the top of my head, but I think the Domus Aurea was on there. I think I mentioned the Protestant Cemetery, which is, or the non-Catholic Cemetery, which is a beautiful place in Rome, but it's, it's supported only by donation and by private financing, and there have been risks that they wouldn't be able to keep it up, and it's just a beautiful place. It would be such a tragedy. The Mausoleum of, of Augustus, which I did finally get to visit last year because usually it's closed and they opened it on the 2000th anniversary of Augustus's death, which was awesome. That's great. Well, you know, just like we always try to get Claudio to talk on this podcast, I often try to get Derek to talk on this podcast. And part of the stipulation of him coming along with me to the exhibit was that he had to give his reflections afterwards, which is something that he really didn't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> but he did it because he loves you. But he did it. He did it. And I think he had some really interesting things to say. The first question I asked him, of course, was, did you feel like this exhibit was a good step back into our time in Italy? Did it remind you of that time in some way? A lot of the ways that you know the ancient Romans lived, the Italians continue to maintain and so it's kind of interesting to see those commonalities, like interior courtyards, for example, or eating al fresco. Is there anything in this exhibit about the lifestyle that they lived in Pompeii or that we lived in Rome that you wish we incorporated more into our life in Seattle? Well, it's hard to eat al fresco in Seattle. You were remarking on how, on the intentionality of all of the items, that their houses aren't cluttered. They had furniture, of course, but most of their items were pretty utilitarian. They were beautiful, but they were useful. And the things that aren't utilitarian are very, they're not mass produced, obviously. They're intentionally crafted and there's, they're just sort of full of meaning of this shape is meant to evoke that particular mythical story or this particular god, that sort of thing. I appreciate that very much. I wish we could incorporate more intentionality into the things that we have in our home. From what you know about your year in Rome, do you think that people that are currently living in Italy do that? Or would you say... That sort of intentionality is not something that humans do anymore, at least in the developed world. Maybe to some extent. I mean, certainly Italians tend to be more conscious of fashion and style. From that perspective, the things that they own, I think they have more of an aesthetic eye than most Americans do. Um, And I think there's a certain intentionality that comes with living in Italy just because you have to, um, just because of the way their economy is set up. This is true. If you need a light bulb, you have to go to a light bulb store. You have to go to the bulbery. 
I don't know, there's a certain intention and pride in craftsmanship that comes with specializing in one thing. But at the same time, like anywhere else in the Western world, most things are mass produced and most things are made of plastic. I guess, you know, 50-50. What do you make of the story of Pompeii? The way they laid it out in this exhibit was very much introduces you to their lifestyle, to how well off some of them were, and then into the tragedy of what happened to those people. What do you think of that narrative? Well, I thought it was well curated. I mean, they did a good job of showing the tragedy as a very human story. They had one bit where we watched a film kind of accelerating the 48 hours of the town's destruction down to four minutes, which was sort of interesting. And, um, you know, one of the women that we were talking to said that, uh, you know, you've always been sort of under the impression that the town was just obliterated instantly, and that's why everyone was caught. But the reality is that they had 24 hours where ash was raining down, but it was coming down like snow, and no one had ever seen a volcano before. There wasn't even a word for volcano in the Latin language. Nobody knew what it was or what was happening, and so they didn't run. They just stayed where they were until it was too late, and then there was this searing blast of heat that killed everyone where they stood. You know, up here in Washington, Tacoma is in the path of Mount Rainier's mud flow, basically, and would be obliterated by what's called a lahar um, should Mount Rainier ever explode. And that's, I mean, Tacoma's got to be 500,000 people. That's a place we've talked about actually moving to. It is. It's a place where I work right now. Do you feel like we should definitely not move there after seeing this? I feel like we should have a way to get on the roof if necessary. The way that people do uh, fire drills in schools in other parts of the country or tornado drills in Tacoma, they do lahar drills where everyone floods up to the roof of the school. I've always had the impression and maybe it's a mistaken impression we didn't get the audio guide that's the kind of cheapskates we are <laughs> maybe they said something about this but the impression that part of the reason why some of them didn't leave was because this is their house this is their fancy manor house what are you going to do like run off and leave it there but maybe that's wrong maybe that was my assumption about their egos <laughs> you know yeah maybe i it's hard to imagine just abandoning all of the things that make your life your life I don't know, philosophically, it kind of calls into question, like, you know, what is your life absent all of the things that you surround yourself with and the place that you live and all of that? It's maybe people just couldn't imagine their lives outside of all of those things. I also think it's kind of interesting how, like, how much time does it take before a human tragedy becomes something that we joke about? And, of course, like every other museum, you exit through the gift shop and one of the things they were selling was Pompeii volcano rock candy. 25,000 people died and now we're selling like themed candy based around it. Or I saw a um, picture on the internet of a, a children's inflatable slide like you would see at a children's birthday party, but it's in the shape of the Titanic sinking. And it's, you know, well, okay, there's your answer, 1917. So, you know, whenever that was made, that's how long it takes for a national tragedy to become a... <laughs> a a joke and a toy. We're getting a little wind action here. Should uh, let's go stand right here, maybe. Just going off that point, I mean, that must be partly. I mean, it's not just a coping mechanism, but it is partly that we can see ourselves in this story, particularly because we live in the shadow of a giant mountain that could blow up. 
but we can also not see ourselves in the story. It's difficult to imagine the moment when the big one comes and rips Seattle apart. I mean, we don't even have a plan. It, it's that much of an unreality. Pompeii so long ago that it seems a starkly sad human story, but it also seems like a non-reality. People will be better prepared now, which may or may not be true. I mean, you still have the people trying to grab their things when they say, leave all your stuff behind, and in the fire drill, you're still getting your jacket and grabbing your purse before you head out the door, right? So maybe that's human folly. I think that's all true. I, I think that a lot of, I think of a, a lot of what we do in our lives, honestly, is at some very deep level, a way of distracting ourselves from the fact that we're not going to be here someday. As human beings, we're pretty practiced at separating ourselves from the idea of our own death. So something that happened 2,000 years ago, it's, it's pretty easy to be distant from that. And it's also easy to say, or to recognize, as people who appreciate a good story, that this is a good story. I mean, there's a reason why Pompeii is a movie and why it's an exhibit. It's not just for the artifacts, it's for the drama. Part of the reason why so many people are here is not just to see like ancient Roman jewelry and statues, they're here because everybody died. I agree. I mean, it's a good story, and it's much easier to see see those people as characters in the story than it is to see them as human beings who are just like you. Very interesting. I, I agree with almost everything he says except for that very last line because I think what makes it so interesting and what makes these great human these great stories of human tragedy so interesting to us, part of it, is because we can see ourselves in them. And that's why we then are interested in their artifacts. Seeing the artifact and connecting the artifact to the tragedy, or it makes us realize, hey, they were, they were really just people like us, and this was the lamp that they might have had in their house, or this was the jewelry that they might have worn. So I think we like, I mean, I don't know why we like the death aspect of it. I can't deny that it's true, that things like the Titanic, I think it's because they're true stories, because we know that the people who died are just like us, and that's what makes them interesting. Yeah, it is interesting to try to contemplate what it is about the horror of it that attracts us. Maybe it's the same thing of why you try to see a car wreck. Yeah, maybe a sense of a sense of something out of the ordinary, something, something. I mean, why why do we slow down to look at a car wreck? Is it because you want to be able to say, "Oh, I saw this horrible thing," and then tell everyone? I don't know. <laughs> when it comes to Pompeii particularly because when we talk about Pompeii, we tend to think of the people who were really wealthy and not so much the slaves. There is something about watching something so beautiful and these people with such a nice lifestyle be destroyed for whatever reason makes us attracted to that. That was very poorly said. Well, I got it, though. And maybe, maybe it's the same thing as the Titanic, because the Titanic was also this luxury ship for super wealthy people and it was all gilded and decorated so finely and so extravagantly and and all the people on there you know actually there were obviously a lot of poor people on there as well but there were so many wealthy people and famous wealthy people who died that you know maybe you're right I never actually thought about that because I would have thought when I hear about a tragedy somewhere like a like a horrible tornado that goes through where do tornadoes go? I don't know. Ten Oklahoma. Oklahoma. There you go. And, you know, you see these, these scenes of destitution and you see these, these people who are generally not wealthy people, 
They're middle-class people, and they're walking amongst the ruin of their life. And you know that, I mean, and these are obviously the lucky people because they're the people who survived. But you know that these people now have nothing. It's not like, oh, well, I have this huge bank account, so I'm going to be fine. <laughs> I'll just build another house. These people, that was everything that they had, and they probably worked 30 years to pay that mortgage, and, and everything's gone. And I think that's, to me, that's much more tragic. Um, I mean, I think most people would agree that it's, it's a sadder situation. Whether or not it has the fascination of the destruction of a wealthy lifestyle, I don't know. Maybe it's the, the way everyone becomes equal in Pompeii. The rich and the poor, nobody made it out. I know, but yet why do we like these scenes of death so much? If we don't want people to die, but yet we want to watch movies about people dying. It must have something to do with how we sort through our own lives. If you see people who are rich lose everything, and then at the same time we spend all our lives accumulating things around us to make us feel safer... It's almost like a roller coaster, maybe. You get to go on the ride of a lifetime, but if you did it in a car, it would be wildly dangerous. <laughs> and on the tracks, it's, it's fairly safe. And maybe it has something to do with that, where you can go watch the destruction of Pompeii, and particularly if you're a Seattleite, not necessarily think that the mountain right next to you could explode at any moment. That's just me talking off the top of my head. I can imagine that as I edit and put this podcast together that I totally disagree with what I just said. Well, so that's okay. I, the last podcast we did, I, I noticed I, I made like two enormous mistakes. <laughs> I said 1852 instead of 1582 for the Gregorian calendar. And I, I called the astronomy tower an astrology tower. So don't worry if you, uh, if you go back on what you said, because that's what uh, live podcasting is all about, right? Well, you know, we're just thinking it through. And I would love to hear ideas about why Pompeii is more attractive to us because everyone dies than going to a museum where not everybody, I mean, obviously everyone died. Because <laughs> museums are about old things, <laughs> but didn't die in such a dramatic way. Yeah. Why Pompeii is much more attractive than some other kind of exhibit. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in the Titanic as well, they did a ti big Titanic exhibit. I went to it several years ago, and, I mean, they had the plates from the Titanic and the stationery from the Titanic, you know, the menus, and it's like, oh, my gosh, it's so fascinating. And why? I mean, there were hundreds of journeys across the ocean just like that arrived safely and we're not fascinated by those journeys we're fascinated by the titanic those artifacts were taken from the bottom of the sea makes them interesting of course that too maybe it just has to do with our love of story and a really dramatic story arc often has death as a catalyst you see that in theater all the time. Yeah, it must be that. I mean, how else can you explain that? You know, in every Shakespeare play, not the comedies, but in the tragedies, everybody ends up dead. Yep. Now, I want to touch on something else that Derek talked about. And you, actually, I think you brought it up, which was when can you start cashing in on a tragedy? How long do you have to wait before you can start selling Titanic merchandise and Pompeii merchandise? It's an interesting thought and uh, like you said maybe just 100 years because the titanic was just over 100 years ago whereas pompeii was 2000 years ago and are there some things that can never will never turn into a product line the eruption of a volcano versus the holocaust i can't imagine even 100 years from now or 200 years from now anyone ever making light of the holocaust one difference is that it's humans doing horrible things to other humans that's true versus the Titanic was about human error. I think you're right. I think that may be a big part of the difference, that 
a, a natural disaster, as tragic as it is at the moment, is not as horrific to us or to our sensitivities and sensibilities as humans killing other humans. I think the interesting thing in all this is the disconnect between, like Derek mentioned, yes, there can be a slide that's in the shape of the Titanic, or you can buy rock candy at the Pompeii exhibit, and we can be like, oh, haha, isn't that so funny? The Titanic, it's a slide. It would be nearly impossible for us to picture anything that happens today in the time that we're alive becoming like that past our lifetimes. There's been a lot of big tragedies and big natural disasters that have happened in our lifetime. For whatever reason, you can't make that jump. You can't picture those becoming what Pompeii is. Yeah, like Hurricane Katrina or something. You can't really... Yes, like... or the horrible <laughs> earthquake in Japan. Mm -hmm. Eventually becoming a museum piece where you can look at the artifacts of what washed ashore afterwards or something like that. It's just impossible to picture, just as it's almost impossible to picture our stuff in a museum 2,000 years from now. Yeah, that's true too. Maybe that's just because we don't make anything that will last that long. <laughs> but, or at least that's what we like to joke about. But there is this disconnect where we can identify ourselves in those people's stories, but then we also can't picture us as those people. That we're in the continuum of history. Yeah, that's true. And that someday people will tell our story however they want to. Mm -hmm. And possibly get it wrong. As we possibly get wrong a lot of the stuff from the past. So much of what you see that's presented is stuff that rich people had. Mm -hmm. When you know something about the slaves and how horrible their life was in Pompeii and, or the prostitutes and they get their own special room because sex sells. <laughs> but maybe that's something subconscious though where the rich people's artifacts live on and those of us like you and me, we disappear into history. Yeah, it's tragic. So we need to get more and we be, need to become more important. <laughs> is what I'm saying. No, I think we need to uh, we need to do the opposite and and learn from from the Pompeii exhibit and the Pompeii site that collecting material stuff in the end of the day, whether you die in a tragic accident or whether you die at the end of a long life, you can't take that stuff with you. So what's the point of having it? Let's leave it there with that thought, that deep thought that I, I would never live by in, in the real world. But I like to say. To make myself sound um, deep. Go home. Stop working so hard. You don't need all that stuff. <laughs> Spend time <laughs> with your family. Well put. Well put. But before we end, I want to solve a mystery that we put out there in a podcast. I don't even know how many episodes ago when I mentioned my favorite kid from Rome. Every night he would play this song outside of my window. Here's a little clip. And we asked you to try to identify what that song was because it was driving me crazy. I could not figure out what it was. And we've had people step up to the plate and I want to give a shout out to uh, the one who got closest and then the one who actually got it right. Kevin, he wrote to us and he said it was this song. It's called Estoy Lorando by Edward Sanchez and DJ Poland. <laughs>
And I listened to this song many, many times and decided, no, it's just not it. It's just not quite right. I can see why he thinks that it's the right song. It resembles the song. It's so close, but it's just not quite there. So it was with great sadness I had to write him back and say, oh, so close, but not quite there. However, this week on Twitter, we had a breakthrough. That's right. We had Brad write in and tell us that the song was by Michel or Michelle or Michel, I don't know how to pronounce it, Telos, I seu te pego. I do not speak Portuguese, but that's the best I could do. Katie checked it out, and that is the song. So well done, Brad. Nossa, nossa, assim você me mata. Ai, se eu te pego, ai, ai, se eu te pego, ai. Delícia, delícia, assim você me mata. Ai, se eu te pego, ai, ai, se eu te pego, hein? And we'll leave it there. I'll play it going out. How about that? Sounds good. Until next week, I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Talk to you soon. Enjoy this song. We finally figured it out. Visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are reserved exclusively for the creation of audio content. Your financial support keeps us strong. Thank you.